Welcome to the Jimmy Neville Podcast. Today's guest is Peter George. Peter believes that everyone should be able to confidently share their knowledge and experience. As a public speaking coach, he specializes in helping professional speakers, authors, consultants, and executives be calm, confident, and credible every time they speak. Throughout his childhood, Peter dealt with a lisp and a stutter. Consequently, he grew up shy, introverted, avoiding communicating with others as much as possible. When he got into the business world, he quickly realized that his lack of presentation skills kept him at a disadvantage. After seeking help, he now credits his public speaking coaches for much of his business success. Over the past 18 years, Peter has helped professionals from around the corner to those in Fortune 100 companies develop into speakers who understand how to craft and deliver presentations that engage, persuade, and inspire, ultimately helping them increase their impact, influence, and income. Peter is the host of the Public Speaking with Peter George podcast, and he is the award-winning author of the book, The Captivating Public Speaker, Engage, Impact, and Inspire Your Audience Every Time. I really enjoyed this conversation with Peter. He's a very interesting person with a lot of unique perspectives around public speaking. Let's get right into it. Peter, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jimmy. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so just want to jump right into it here. Um, so, yeah, first question, like, what inspired you to become a public speaking expert, and how did you get started in the field? It's kind of the field chose me. I grew up with a lisp and stutter, and when you have those speech impediments, well, at least for me, the last thing I ever wanted to do is communicate with people. So I didn't speak much unless it was to my family, my closest friends, that type of thing growing up. But by the time I hit high school, both were, for the most part, gone. They still rear their ugly heads every now and again, but for the most part, they were tamed. But when I got into the business world after school, they told me I had to present. And I said, well, I don't do that. Because, <laughs> again, the last thing I wanted to do was communicate. It's the way I grew up. Grew up so. But I had no choice. So they sent me for classes for public speaking, and I really got into it. I really liked it. What I had learned, Jimmy, was that while I was growing up, I was studying public speaking, but just how to avoid it. But I was still studying it. So when I went for the classes, I'm like, oh, I recognize this, and yeah, this makes sense to me. And then I went for one-on-one -on -one coaching, and that's where I really honed my skills. But I still wasn't like eager to run out there and do presenting. Well. Fast forward, I leave the corporate world when I was about 30 and started my own business. And a major corporation came to me and said, you're using our brand new product. Very few people in New England, where I'm from, uh, are using it. As a matter of fact, you're the first in Rhode Island and only the second in all of New England. Would you come on a little tour with us and tell others why you're using it and the benefits you find from it? And I said, sure. And so I started speaking only a few times, but for this major corporation. Then my wife, who was my partner in my company, realized every time I spoke, we got a bump in revenue. And she's an accountant by trade, so it didn't take her long to recognize that and say, keep doing that. So and that's when I started speaking more and more and more. And it increased the revenue of our company. 
so at that point, I started getting requests, more and more requests to be on stage. And that was about, well, that started about, I don't know, 33 years ago, that portion of it. So altogether, I've been speaking for about 36. And about halfway through that, some people came to me and said, hey, I liked how you did that. Why'd you do it that way? Or what do you think about this? And I realized even more than speaking, which I absolutely love, I love to coach people. I love to help them achieve what they're looking to do. So it was never me saying, hey, I want to go do this. It just kind of evolved. Yeah, I, I could see how, how it evolved there. Can you talk about a challenging experience you had maybe early on and how you overcame it? Well, it's probably no different than a lot of people who are just very nervous about getting up there and speaking. And so I would go through the same thing everybody else does. My heart would beat out of my chest. My blood pressure would go up. You could see the blood in my uh, throat uh, or my throat turn red, the blood rising my, into my cheeks. You could see all of that. I thought people could hear my voice quiver, maybe see my knees shake, which they couldn't. They couldn't see any of that. But it's all in your head for the most part. And uh, the more I did it, the more comfortable I got. But what I didn't realize at the time was even though I got more comfortable, didn't mean I was getting better. Hmm. It's kind of like standing at the plate and the first time a pitcher would throw a 90 mile an hour fastball, you're like, oh my God. Well, after a while you get used to it. Doesn't mean you can hit it, but you get used to it. So it was the same thing. And even though I got more comfortable, I wasn't getting better. So then I kept, I went back and got even more training and consistent and constant training. It went on and on and on. And much of what I learned, Jimmy, goes back to this one thing. It's all about the audience. We think it's about us. It's not about us. It's about the audience. And the more you realize that, it takes a lot of the weight off your shoulders because we're thinking, what if I screw up? What if I forget what I'm going to say? What if they can hear my voice quiver or see my knees shake? What if I, what if I, what if I? What if me? What about me? It's not about us. It's about the audience. So if you go out there to serve the audience, then serve them well. Be prepared. Give them the benefit that they're looking for. Transform them in some way. Don't speak to inform. Speak to transform. When you learn all this and you really take this to heart, well, the rest, is it easy? No. Is it simple? Eh, it's getting there. It takes practice. Confidence comes from competence. The better you get at it, the more you know what you're doing, the more confidence you'll have, the better you'll get. Yeah, I've always liked that quote. I wrote a question to ask you while you're speaking there, which is, how can you tell when you're getting better? Like, what are the metrics that you use? Don't go by people coming up to you and saying, hey, great job. <laughs> right. Now, sometimes that happens. Right? If you're in a conference room, say, and you go up to the front of the conference room, you present for 20 minutes, and you're passing someone on the way back to your seat, and they just lean over and say, great job. Well, that's all they have time to say, and they're just complimenting you, and that's, that's fine. But after you present, and you have time to talk with someone, and all they can come up with is, hey, great job. You might want to think if that's accurate or not. Here's why. If you actually transform them in some way, you gave them something to think about or do, new information so they can accomplish something, 
whatever that might be. They're going to say things like, hey, I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't know that. Or that's going to help me so much in this endeavor. They're going to put a little more uh, information in because you meant something to them and they realize it. Great job. Not so much. That's just a, hey, you had the guts to get up there and do it. So you mentioned preparing for the public speaking engagement. What are some practical tips for preparing? <laughs> Prepare well in advance. Well in advance. So uh, like a good bit of time before? Is that what you mean by well in advance? Yeah, well, we're when we're recording this, three days from now, I'm doing a presentation on stage. I've been rehearsing that for about a month now. And there's an old actor's line about rehearsing, and this is what I like to use uh, in, in my, own, uh, my own presenting as well as my clients, what I tell them. You don't rehearse so you get it right. You rehearse till you can't get it wrong. So now if something happens, you can come out of your talk and address that and go back if someone asks a question that takes you somewhere else, you know how to address that, whether you want to go there or just ask them to speak about that personally since it's off topic later on, whatever that might be. But you want to rehearse that much. People say, well, if I rehearse too much, I sound rehearse. Well, that means you haven't rehearsed enough. Hmm. Broadway actors rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. Professional athletes rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. They just call it practice. You've never heard a hitter say, you know, I took too much hitting practice. I won't hit well today. Rehearse till you can't get it wrong. So too many of us, because we're nervous, and I get that, we wait till the last moment. The night before, we're trying to jam something together. And then it doesn't go well, and we rationalize it by saying, well, you know, it's a good thing I didn't put much time into that because it wasn't that good. I would have wasted my time if I would rehearsed more. No, rehearse more. Get it right. Plus, it's only respect. Respect for yourself, but even more so for your listeners, your audience. Whether that's one person, 10 people in a conference room, 100 people in a breakout room, or 1,000 people in an auditorium. You have to show respect for them. They took their time to be there. Even if their boss told them they had to be there, they're still there. If you don't rehearse so you can take them from point A to point B then and do it well, then you're not respecting them, and they know it. So how would you explain the difference between memorizing something and rehearsing something? Because I think I remember reading on your website that you don't want to memorize. Don't memorize. Don't memorize. When your adrenaline's flowing, that's all those feelings you have, your heart beating, blood pressure, that's all, a, it's an adrenaline rush. And unfortunately, we often label adrenaline rushes as negative. I have to do this, I don't like doing this, look how I feel, I feel terrible, as opposed to positive. I love to jump out of planes, I love to go on roller coasters, I love to speak. Same feeling, labeled differently. So, uh, and I went off track there with, my mind anyway the question the question was yeah so rehearsing versus memorizing yeah, yeah. Ah, rehearsing versus memorizing don't memorize 
because when you do get that adrenaline rush, and that's where I was going with that, uh -huh. then your mind tends to forget things. And then once you go, oh, my God, I forgot that word. Or I forgot what I was trying to say here. Your mind will start racing, which is counterproductive. So don't memorize what you want to say. Just remember what you want to talk about. So here's my first talking point. Here's my second talking point. Here's my third talking point. Now, if I passed you in a hallway, Jimmy, and I said, hey, Jimmy, what's that second talking point you're going to talk about tomorrow night? You say, boom, here it is. It's not going to be the very same words, but it'll have mm -hmm. the very same meaning. So I, don't I memorize exactly what you want to say. You might want to memorize, not you might, you should memorize your opening and your closing, but they're only a sentence or two because you want to have those. You know this is a great opening. You know this is a great closing. You want to have those in your back pocket. Okay, and then like when you talk about rehearsing, what does that look like? Because I also believe that I read on your website that you should not practice in front of a mirror. Yeah, once upon a time, that's all we had. Yeah. You practice in front of a mirror. And practicing in front of a mirror is fine if you're not delivering your presentation. You're just looking at your, your facial expressions, your body language and the like, and you're not worrying about what you're saying. But you can't concentrate both on your delivery and the presentation itself and critique it all in the mirror. It, it gets convoluted. You're not doing it well. The way, way to rehearse is use the best thing ever invented for public speaking your phone. Prop it up, hit record, record your rehearsal, then play it back, but play it back in three different ways. The first way is face down so you can't see the video and just listen to the sound. Make notes. Am I saying a lot of fillers? Um, ah, uh, so, right? All those things. Am I pausing enough? Am I speaking too quickly? Am I speaking too slowly? Am I monotone? Do I have no intonation? Changing the speed, whatever it might be. Make those notes. Take it to heart. Now flip the phone over so you can see the video and turn off the sound. What's your body language saying? Is it engaging? Is it supporting? Is it monotone? Is it saying nothing? Do you have your hands in your pockets, your hands behind your back? Are you not using your hands to speak? Because you should be. So those are the notes you want to take again. Are you moving too much, pacing, whatever it might be? Take those notes and then play it back a third time with both the audio and the video. By that time, you'll probably take the vast majority of notes. But for that third one, you might see another one or two things that come to mind that you want to work on. And then just go work on them and then start the process all over. So if you were going to be doing a 30-minute presentation how many hours do you think of preparation would you would you put into, into that? If it was something brand new you've never done before? I personally would put in, got it, 30 minutes. I'd probably put in 30 hours. Wow. But because I'm going to do that presentation, well, you, you take it from the time, conceptual aspect when you start fleshing it out and writing it down to the point where I then – rehearse it, say, ah, I don't like this, I want to change this, run it by a few people, do all these things. It takes a little bit, bit of time. Do you have to do every single one of these things? No, but the more that you do, the better it gets. So, And then start rehearsing it to the point, again, where you can make it feel fresh, 
not to the point where it's not feels stale go beyond that so now you can just make it feel fresh you can have fun with it you can concentrate on engaging with the audience not concentrate on what you're saying and not engaging the audience you mentioned the filler words um stuff like that <laughs> yeah How, yep. what why are why do people use filler words and what is the best way to get rid of them we use them for a few reasons. One is sometimes we just want to monopolize the conversation, or at least at that moment, where we might say, we're going to do do, do this, and and that's just fill, filling space, so I don't give you time to talk. I can think of what I want to say next and continue. But many of the fillers is because our brain knows we should be pausing. Pausing is an extremely important part of delivering a presentation speaking with another person in that if I give you something new you're hearing it for the first time you need time to process it digest it figure out what it means to you and how you might use it only talking a couple of seconds but that's necessary so we may instinctively know that it's time to pause or we might just be pausing to get ideas straight in our head before we say them and many of us don't like silence. So instead of having silence, we say, um, uh, now a few here and there is not a big deal. But when you have dozens of them, some people have hundreds of them. I saw a professor speak not too long ago. Well, I've been saying that for a couple of years now, so I guess it's getting to be long, a while back. 317 ums. It, it was it was incredible. It was over, in, incredibly overwhelming. It was really tough to listen to him. So that's why we do them. But here's what it does to the brain. The brain says, okay, he's given me a second here, a couple of seconds to process what he just said so I can internalize it. But every time I go to internalize it, he makes this sound that interrupts my thought process. It's no different than if I said something to you, Jimmy, and then screeched my fingers down a blackboard. It would be, stop that. It's irritating. Let me think here. So how do you get rid of this? First of all, recognize that you're doing it. Ask people if you do it. They'll tell you the truth. Well, hopefully they will. Some might try to spare your feelings, but ask them to tell you the truth. Then you'll start recognizing when you do it. But if you want to eradicate them even sooner, give someone who is willing to help you. And I joke around by saying, not your significant other because they have way too much fun with this uh, my wife who's my best friend has been for 30 some odd years uh, would have a lot of fun with it go to the store pet smart whatever uh, dog store uh, pet store and buy a clicker that they train dogs with click 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 and give it to someone now when you're rehearsing your talk or even when you're speaking throughout the day and you say um have them go click click so you start to see how often you do it. It will drive you crazy at first. You might even say, I didn't say, um, yeah, you did. That's why I clicked the clicker. So have them do that. After a while, it starts to become top of mind. You start hearing it. And it might screw you up for a little while, because when you start hearing it, you might stop speaking. But after a while, you'll ride right over that and just start to eradicate them with time. It really doesn't take that long. 
If I gave that to my wife, she'd have me take out the garbage, click, click, do the floors, click, click. So make sure someone will, won't have too much fun with the clicker. Yeah, I've noticed a big difference in just my first. I, I told you earlier before we press record that this is, I think, the sixth episode I've recorded. And just by going back and editing them and watching them and becoming aware of, of the fillers that I was using, writing them down, I've already noticed a big difference by just being aware of it. And it is in the top of my mind because when there is a silence, I do, I want to say, um, or I want to say, yeah, use those fillers, but I'm working on it. So, <laughs> And we all have them. And, yeah. and we have catchphrases that we fall in love with without, without even realizing it. I know which ones I say that I, I say, ah. Why did I just say that? Um, I, I will sometimes, and I think I did it earlier on this, say, and the like, or whatever it might be, instead of just stopping the sentence. Or do you know what I mean? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people that do that. Do you, they say, do you know what I mean after everything they say? Well, they, they I, th I believe, and a psychologist would have a better uh, grasp on this, but I believe they're just trying to either make sure you understand them but i don't think that's it i i think they're just uncomfortable with making a statement and leaving it there yeah i think that because i've i definitely have have said that before and i think that hits the nail on the head i want to make sure that yeah i, I, I want to make sure what i said is being received well before i go on to the next thing because yeah i'm uncomfortable making a statement and leaving it there so and there's, there's a device for that, that we already have. That's the other person saying, Jimmy, I don't understand what you mean. Then you can explain it. But other than that, assume for the most part that they understand what you mean. If it's well thought out and based on them, not you, odds are they will. Clear and concise. So thinking clearly while speaking, I had a, this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you about, but as we've been talking... It's, it seems to me like the answer to that question would be like being just being prepared, like taking the time to prepare for the public speaking engagement will help you think clearly while making the presentation. Is there anything else that you would add to that? Less is more. Like so many things in life, less is more. Don't just keep adding on to a sentence or a paragraph in your head trying to uh, elaborate or make it clearer. You should say it clearly and concisely to begin with. You're probably good. And you can tell, by the way, if people are nodding their head and smiling, they're getting it. If they look like the dog who can't understand its own as words and tilts their head a little bit, maybe brings their brow down, like, I don't get that, then you have to re-explain something. Say you're in the middle of a public speaking engagement and you notice that in the crowd everyone's just sitting there no one no one seems interested what can you do to get back on track at that point well if they're con confused is different than being not interested let's go with the confused with the head tilting brow down a little bit that depending on the size of the group if that happens i'll just ask where did i lose you because they probably lost them at a particular point now it might require that I go back and explain that or it could be that I can just go on and help clarify as we go on uh, but so that's one if you've to totally lost them where the phones are out 
and the cough of death, which is just people in the audience going, <clears throat> and then that becomes contagious, then there are ways to get them engaged. Tell a story, a relevant story, relevant to the point you're making. Tell a story. People love stories. Probably one of the better things you can do to begin with is tell stories. The other is ask questions. When we're asked questions, we tend to answer them. Even if it's a rhetorical question, it gets answered in our head. So between questions and stories, people will get reinvolved. And a lot of people will say, well, I lost them. I have to amp up my energy here. I have to bring them back and they get real quick. Nope, slow is better at this point. It's kind of like pulling them in with a rope. Just methodically do it. Okay. So you and I both know that there are good storytellers and bad storytellers. Sometimes I'm being told a story and I want nothing more than to run the other way as fast as I can. And other times I'm hearing a story and I'm purely engaged and interested. And how do you tell a good story? What makes a good story? Uh, for our purposes here, a few things. Set up. What's the situation? Don't go into detail. And this is what happens when people tell stories that you go, what's the point? Don't go into details that don't matter. He walked through the door. Okay, when you, say, when you say he's going in the house, you don't have to add, he then walked through the door. We're trying to make this dramatic at that point. No, he went in the house. So do the setup. Then what's the obstacle? What's the challenge? A story has a challenge that has to be overcome. Then give the resolution. And if you want, and I suggest you should, in most cases, tell the moral of the story, what this means to the person you're speaking to. So it's as simple as that. Give me the setup. Give me the obstacle that the hero in the story that you told about in the setup has to overcome. Tell, them, tell me how they resolved it and what that means, and we're good. So how do you become a good storyteller? Is it just practicing or are there any other practical tips? Learning to do it. So read books, speak to people who know how to do it. Like read Learn books to... on storytelling or books yeah. that tell good stories? Uh, both. Okay. But there are plenty of books out there on good storytelling, how to tell a good story. Learn to do it. You don't learn it on your own for the most part. You could, but it also might take years. So it's like me saying, hey, I want to become a champion skier in the Olympics, and I'll just keep going out and ski. Well, no, I probably should have a coach who knows what they're talking about to help me become that good. So research storytelling and then t tell stories well. Take what you learned and tell stories. You can't just wait till you're speaking publicly to tell a story. And we tell stories every day. People, Some people say, ah, you know, Peter, I'm not really into stories. Well, yeah, you are. Do you watch a sitcom at night? Yeah, that's a story. Actually, a sitcom usually has two or three stories, storylines going at the same time. Uh, do you go to the movies? Yeah, well, that's a story. Read a novel? Yeah, that's a story. Do you ha live with someone else, a spouse, a roommate, or anybody who when you come home at the end of the day, they say, hey, how'd your day go? You know, it's following up a story, unless you just say fine. But if you say, ah, oh, 
I had this client. I thought it was going to go well. Right, that's a quick little setup. I had a client really enthused, and it went over like a lead balloon. Well, why? And then you continue the story. Well, bop, 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 this is what happened. How'd it turn out? Believe it or not, I saved it. We we signed the client or the prospect who's now a client, and the, and that's it. We tell stories all the time. Just have to get better at it. R- remember, the, remember the challenge, the obstacle. That's what people forget. Do any like specific books come to mind? Stories That Stick is a great book by Kendra Hall. Okay, I'll great put, that, put that in the, in the show notes. On your website, I also saw you mentioning to let your body speak while you're giving a presentation. What do you mean by that? Your body speaks to people, whether it's your face, your mannerisms, using your hands, walking, stance, all of that speaks to people on the unconscious level. So that's what people don't realize. What we're saying and how we're saying it is often on the conscious level, but our body and our facial expressions talks on the unconscious level. So no one's standing there saying, well, I'll I'll give you this example. While you and I are speaking, I've noticed that your eyebrows go up and down. Now, I look for that because this usually comes up. How many times have you raised your eyebrows while we've been speaking in this recording? I have no idea. No idea. No one would. It's all unconscious. And as much as it's unconscious on your side, it's unconscious on the viewer's side, your listener's side. So... If I'm slouching or standing on one hip, that's not as confident looking as if I'm standing with my weight centered over two legs and my feet shoulder width apart. That's a confident stance. So no one's going to say necessarily, well, that guy speaking today was standing on one hip and every 30 seconds went to the other hip. No one's going to say that, but they might say, you know what, that guy, Peter, I wasn't all that comfortable with him. I don't know why. That's because it's on the unconscious level. I know if I'm nervous, my face looks like I want to wipe out the world. I know that. So I have to be conscious of the fact that if I'm nervous, I have to make sure I have a more pleasant look on my face. Otherwise, I know people, some people might even say at that point, you know, the guy looks like he's angry. But a lot of people just might say, man, he didn't look like he was having a good time. And if he wasn't having a good time with us, well, I wasn't comfortable with him. Your body speaks. Use your hands to talk. Long before we had, as a species, verbal communication, we used our hands to communicate. That has not left through evolution. We communicate through our hands. Use your hands. So what about with everything? You know, nowadays there's so much going on where it's virtual instead of in person. Like our conversation right now, we're doing it virtually. Or if you have to give a presentation virtually, is there a big difference in how you would do it virtually versus in person? The the foundation is the same. That doesn't change. What we pick up from looking at other people, what uh, how we feel with them, that really doesn't change. The fact that it's 2D, the fact that I can't see your entire body language, That might make a difference to some people. Probably makes a difference to most of us. 
So things do change when we're virtual, but even even in here, and we're on tight shots here, so uh, it, it doesn't come through as much. I wouldn't normally speak with my hands up towards my face, unless whatever I was saying called for that. But when I'm uh, virtual, I try to lift my hands up a little higher just so you can see my hands every once in a while because we communicate with our hands, like I said. You mentioned earlier, don't speak to inform, speak to transform. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Have you ever been in a meeting? Let's say an hour-long meeting. At the end of that meeting, you're leaving, and as you're walking down the hall, you go, I will never, ever, ever get that hour back in my life. We've all been there. If you're in business, you've been there. You feel like your hour was wasted. That's because the person leading the meeting didn't speak or didn't call that meeting to transform people. They called the meeting to inform people, or even worse, they called the meeting because that's what we do Monday mornings at 9 o'clock. Don't really have much to say, but that's what we do at Monday mornings at 9 o'clock. If you're speaking to inform people, create a PDF, email it to them. Probably just as good, depending on what you're speaking about. Speaking to transform them is different. They leave differently than when they went in the meeting. And that's the purpose of a meeting. Transform them. Transform them. If it's your presentation, like the one I'm doing coming up, it's how people can communicate more effectively and more confidently. They should leave transformed. If they came into that presentation and I don't transform them and they leave at the end of that evening no differently than they came in, why do we have this? They were better off going out to play with their dog, walk in the park, do something else, go home and relax, read a book if they're not transformed. So we often think about presentations as I have to vomit information on people, just keep giving people more and more and more information. To what point? If they don't know what they're going to do with that information, if it doesn't change them in some way, why do we have it? So, Jimmy, here's what I say to you. I'll say to your listeners. Stop thinking of presentations how you think of them and start thinking of them as conversations that benefit people. And they are conversations, even if you're the only one talking. Because when you say something, people react. They might not react verbally and out loud, but they react internally. They're thinking about something. They're looking at in their heads how they're going to implement that. That's transformation. It's a conversation. You see someone, like I said before, cock their head a little. Okay, you lost them. They just told you that. So make sure you get them back. They smile, nod their head. They're with you. They're telling you that. They're saying, okay, Jimmy, keep going. I'm with you. This is awesome. There's a conversation going on. But we get up there and we present because that's what a presentation is. I'm the expert. Aren't I awesome? And we vomit information on them. Jimmy, you're a lot younger than I am, so you might not have learned this yet, but people don't like to be vomited on. Don't vomit information on them. I have learned that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fam- 
I've been on the giving kinda, and receiving end of that. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. it's kind of common sense. People don't enjoy that. So, yeah. but yet that's what we do because that's a presentation. And you know, how many slides can I shove up in their face? I've heard people explain, as far as public speaking goes, to pick one person at a time to look at and talk to, and then keep switching from one person. Is that something you do or would recommend doing? Yeah, I do. Uh, on both of those questions, I do it and I recommend doing it. You don't, people say, well, look at everybody. And you should to some degree, depending on how many people are there. Sometimes you can just look at areas, which is fine. If you know, you've got 500 people you're speaking to, you look at areas. But when you're making a point, you don't want to be scanning. You want to stop and make a point and look at some one person. Because you can't look at everybody anyway. I don't care if there's 12 people there. You can't look at everybody at the same time. So then move to another person. It doesn't have to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. You know, it's going from left to right or right to back. You can look at one here and then one over there and then one here. So it's random. But don't just keep jumping. Make contact with them. Engagement is done through contact. So engage them, stay with them, make your point, look at someone else. Something to go along with that is use the word you in the singular sense, not the plural sense. I'll give you an idea. You want people to say, wow, Jimmy was awesome. He was speaking right to me. He helped me. He knew what I was going through. He knew what it would take to get me through this. Man, this was awesome. That's what you want. And you want everybody, within reason, to feel that way. Now, if I use the language, who here is from the Northeast? I'm not speaking to one person there. I'm just throwing a net out to everybody. Isn't it so much more like a one-on-one -on -one conversation if you say, you change that a little bit and say, raise your hand if you are from the Northeast. You know, who came in on a plane? Nope, change that to raise your hand if you came in on a plane. You're speaking to everybody, and because you is both plural and singular, you can use the word and everybody thinks you're speaking directly to them in the singular form that way. That's what you want to do. People say, you know, Peter, I'm good with one, two, maybe three people. You put 25, 50, 100 people in a room, man, I can't do it. It's because you're trying to talk to 100 people. You're trying to talk to 12 people. You can't. You can only talk to one. It's just replicated however many times it needs to be. And that's what you want to do. I can't figure out how to talk to 100 people. I'm too nervous. I can't figure it out. No, because you can't. Devise your presentation like you're talking to one person. Get an idea of who the audience is and then turn that audience into one person and then present to that person. Yeah, they, exactly. And, and that might not be throughout the whole presentation. That might change. Let's say you're speaking to a business group and you have CFOs. So they're going to be financially on the financial side of things. You have marketing people. They're looking at things in the company a different way. And you have IT people who are looking at things in the company a completely different way. You can say things that might 
address all of them. But then there are specific things for the financial people, the marketing people, and the IT people. So at one point you might say, and what this means to you at IT, and again, that you, even though it can be uh, plural, you're using it as the singular, so all 25 people at IT think you're speaking directly to them. What that means to you in IT is this. What that means to you in marketing is this. And what that means to you in finance is this. You might not make it that bland, but that's in essence what you're trying to accomplish. I see. You speak to finance people and I'm sitting there. I'm taking a nap. I married an, an accountant for a reason. So, yeah, I'm just not a financial person. I have no interest in it whatsoever. Yeah, I'm usually the IT person in those meetings that are directed at a bunch of people. And most of yeah. the time I'm sitting there like thinking this does not like hardly anything that's being said in this meeting applies to me. Yeah. How would you feel if you go to a, and they talk all about marketing at that meeting? Aren't you really like, why okay. am I here? A root yeah, canal is can a, a better option at that point. Yep. So the big topic that I'm sure everyone asked you about, and you probably knew I was going to ask you about is the, Fear of public speaking. So what are the reasons why people are afraid of public speaking? It, it's on several levels. One is it goes back to evolutionary times or evolution, evolution from caveman times. If there are a bunch of people looking in your cave, it was one of three things. And, and, and I'm really making this kind of comical and, and uh, somewhat simple. And it goes deeper than this, but it gives you the idea. If a bunch of people were looking at your cave, it was one of three things. A bunch of eyes. It was your tribe coming over to your place. And if your tribe came over to your place, it wasn't to sing you happy birthday. You ticked them off. They came over in mass, and they're either going to kill you or banish you from the village. Either way, you're a dead man. If it wasn't your tribe, it was another tribe, and they've already killed everybody else, and they're going to kill you next. So you're a dead man. And if it wasn't human eyes, it was wildlife eyes, which meant you had dinner. So our brain got to know that a bunch of eyes looking at us was not a safe situation. And your brain, to this day, checks for dangerous situations or stressful situations six times a second, awake or asleep. That's why you can hear a baby cry in the sound sleep. It's checking for that six times a second. So that hasn't left us. That's in the most primitive part of our brains to keep us safe. More modern or more recent times, did my parents tell me, don't speak until you're spoken to? Don't speak while the adult's speaking. Don't speak in such a loud voice. Don't speak, and we hear, don't speak, don't speak, don't speak. And then we get to the third grade, and Mrs. Jones says, Jimmy, come up here and speak to the class. And you go, uh, I don't do this. I, I, I don't like to do this. Or maybe you don't mind it, and you come up. And then you screw up, and all your friends in the third grade laugh at you. And that still bothers you today. And it equates to, what if I speak in front of my coworkers and I screw up? They're going to laugh at me. No, they won't. And basically, for those who do, the heck with them. There's nothing you can do about that. They're adults. They're making up their own minds. And if that's the way they look at things, then you could be the, give a tremendous presentation. They'll find fault. Don't worry about those people. But if you pr prepare properly and you prepare and prepare and prepare and you do screw up, you did the best you could. If you don't prepare and you screw up, well, that's on you. But that's why we get nervous. What if I screw up? What if I don't do well? Plus, I don't know how to do this. They gave me a promotion. Now I have to speak to people. 
They're not telling me how I do that. I guess they're assuming I do that. So we get nervous. I don't know how to do this. And then we go replicate all the bad presentations we've seen where people put up, you know what I'll do? I'll just put a bunch of words on the slide that'll remind me what to say. Well, we've all seen those and we've been bored to tears because you can read that slide to yourself faster than I can read it out loud. So you get to the end and go, Peter, just flip the slide and let's get through this thing. So, but yet, since I don't know what to do, I just replicate all the things I've seen before, which most aren't all that good. We knew we didn't have a good time, but we don't know what else to do. So when you take evolution, when you take what might have been in your personal life as a youngster, when you take the fear of screwing up in front of your boss, your coworkers, especially your coworkers, they're the ones you hang around with throughout the day or uh, later on after work. You don't want to do that, so we get nervous. And then that feeling we have, my heart pounds, I get sweaty, all these things is the flight, fight or flight response. And we take it that way as opposed to, man, like one of my clients who jumps out of perfectly good planes. Actually, I now have two clients who jump out of planes. They have the very same feeling except they're looking at it as, this is so cool. I'm jumping out of a plane. That's why we get nervous. The way to manage it, just know that it's happening. Know that it's supposed to happen. Don't wish it away because it'll never go away. And if it does go away, that's your time not to speak in front of people because you don't care anymore. When adrenaline hits us, it's telling our bodies and our brain something special is going to happen. Don't make the special a bad thing. It's not that you have to do it. You get to do it. Most of us who are chosen to speak, whether it's a community thing or in work, we didn't win a lottery. We accomplished something. Our bosses or our community have faith in us to do something. You get to do this. You were chosen to do this. Learn to do it well. And you never have to look back. Do you have any practical tips for how to help people get their energy levels right before they speak? Yeah, find something that helps you. Uh, sometimes it's a ritual. Many times it is. Like I, I pace. I don't pace on stage. But if you see me an hour before I speak, I am pacing. I'm pacing in my hotel room. I'm pacing backstage. If it's in an office building, I'm pacing up and down the hallway. I pace, I pace, I pace. And while I'm doing that, I'm visualizing everything going well. I'm visualizing the audience clapping when I get there. I'm visualizing people nodding their heads and smiling when I'm giving points. I visualize the ovation at the end. I visualize people coming up to me later on. It's all very much like an athlete because they're performing as well. It is a bit of a it's not a bit of a performance. It is a performance. So follow what athletes do. They visualize themselves. Yeah, look at Michael Jordan. Right? He always said, give me the ball with 0.8 seconds left. Just long enough to get the shot off. He visualized that thing going in before it even left his hands. That's what we want to do. Usain Bolt, fastest man in the world, would visualize himself coming across the finish line first. Visualize success. So get into a habit to bring your energy down, breathe, 
diaphragmatic breathing, also known as cleansing breaths and the like. Deep, deep, deep breaths. Don't hold it. In and out. Just a few so you don't get lightheaded. Get your energy down. People go, well, I don't want my energy to be down. You do so you can manage it. Because believe me, once they say your name, even if it's in a conference room and Jimmy, can you come up here and say a few words? Your adrenaline is going to shoot right back. So you want it there where you can manage it. You don't want it so hyped and now even more is going to be there. Learn to control your mind and your body. It's not difficult. Again, you can read books on it. You can look up online how to do that. A lot of people use meditation. So I, I talk to myself a lot. And that helps. You mentioned something in either your book or your website. I read through the first few chapters of your book, but you said that you should not picture people in their underwear. And I thought that was funny <laughs> because it's a, it's a very common thing you hear, you know, picture people in their underwear. But why shouldn't you picture people in their underwear? First of all, how do you do that? How do you picture people in their underwear? And how do you picture people in mass? 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people. How do you picture people in their underwear like that? I have no idea where that came from. It probably came from a joke, and someone took it as being real. And what's unfortunate is I heard not too long ago on a, on a podcast, on a YouTube podcast, uh, a, an extremely well-known person in my industry, public speaking coach, actually advised that. And my thought is, to what end? How does that make you less nervous? If I pictured someone in there, how does that make me less? It probably make me more nervous of wondering why I want to picture these people in their underwear. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, that's just, that's foolhardy. I have no idea. Where, again, some of the stuff we see on television, you know, 100 years ago, maybe not quite 100 years ago, on radio, and we take that, and now we see them on the internet, some things, and we take them as fact. That, oh, you got to do this. Now, use common sense. Why would you want to picture people in their underwear? Yeah, it seems like it'd be a little distracting. No, you when know. I, you know, oh man, when, you know, when I was much younger and an athlete, maybe someone would want to picture me in my underwear. I don't think so, but maybe someone would. <laughs> I can guarantee you now there's no one on this planet, probably including my wife, who wants to picture me in my underwear. Oh my gosh. Okay. So another thing you mentioned is that you're supposed to meet people where they are. Yes. And I want to hear you talk about that as well. You ever go to hear someone speak and they say, Whoa, come on, guys. Let's get some energy here. Get up. Jiggle your arms around. And, and, and before we got so concerned with uh, political correctness, you know, rub the shoulders of the person to your left. Now to the right. We did all these things that we introverts, of which I am a card-carrying introvert, would go, are you kidding me? They were trying to get that speaker, that presenter, was trying to get that audience to his or her level of energy. It's not about us. Remember, it's about the audience. So let's take right after lunch. Everybody just ate. Everybody's lethargic. And I hate when I get that slot at a conference when I first see it. And then I think about it and go, watch this. Because most people would struggle with that. So I've come to enjoy not enjoy it, but learn how to use it, probably because I've gotten it so much over the years speaking then. I know they're going to be a little lethargic, but that only lasts for 20 minutes total while your stomach takes control of your body. 
and starts to digest things. So your brain relinquishes the power to the stomach. Again, simplifying everything. So I know if at the beginning I'm a little slower and I bring them along, and if at the end I need a little more energy to give them the benefit that they're looking for, well, I know over that 20 minutes I can bring them up to that energy. And if I'm speaking for 20 minutes, well, cool. It took them a little time to get there, get settled in before I was announced, so it's probably only 10 minutes. But if I'm speaking for a half hour, an hour, not a problem. Just meet them where they are. If you're doing a business meeting first thing in the morning where everybody's kind of dragging their butts, the coffee hasn't kicked in yet, they don't have the energy yet, don't start, hey, happy Monday morning, everybody. Those are the people, you know, we want, can't you go get another job somewhere else? <laughs> Figure out where they are. Scientists or researchers say that it's easier to get children in the right framework than it is adults. All things being equal, if the kid's living in a, uh, abusive home or no food at the home, that's different. But all things being equal, kids, they know when they go to school, this is what I do. I sit here, the teacher does it. But adults, even though we say, okay, Monday morning meeting, I know this is what we do. <sighs> Man, I don't know how I'm going to get the car fixed. I don't have the money for that today. And, you know, my wife wants me to do this and my husband wants me to do that. And uh, my boss is on my back with the Our minds are elsewhere. We have so many more responsibilities. So it becomes an art, if you will, a little bit of a skill to get people from where they are to where you want to be. Easier to go meet them and bring them along slowly. Great way to do that, by the way. Play music. You have a Monday morning meeting, that type of thing. Play music. Breaks the tension. People get where, get into the music. And then when you shut off the music, you have them where you need them to be. But you went out and reached out to them with the music. That's why when you go to conferences, you'll hear that quite often when everybody's filing in, music's playing. It's to stop you from thinking about everything you need to think about as an adult. <laughs> I see. They do that at my job, so now I know I'm being uh, psychologically manipulated when I go to no, my it's just No, it's helping <laughs> so, you. It's no. just getting you to get in. You, you don't want to be zoned out, so they're just getting you there. No, it, it does help, definitely. Yeah. So, as far as writing goes, how much overlap is there between being a good writer and being a good speaker? There's some overlap, I'm sure. They're two different disciplines. So, I know some writers who are tremendous writers who aren't necessarily good speakers and speakers who aren't necessarily good writers. Just because they're both forms of communication don't mean that if you have one skill, you have the other. So it doesn't mean you can't have, but it doesn't just automatically mean that you do. Uh, it'd be like playing sports and say, well, if you're good in baseball, then you'll probably be good in football. That may or may not be true. you know. Or, or if you're good in baseball, obviously you'll be good in hockey. Well, <laughs> that may not be true. So just because they're forms of communication... They have different disciplines. They have different, uh, they attract different parts of the mind. Uh, you can look at them differently. When I write, and I used to own a publishing company, so the book that I wrote is the first book I've written on public speaking that's out now, but I've been involved in the written communication for a long time. But when you write, it's different. It's a very one person action you're there by yourself 
you can write and edit. You can edit as many times as you want. You can change things. You can go back to what you wrote a month ago and change it to fit something you're writing now. So if you're, let's say, writing a book, when you're speaking, that's different. Even though you might be up there alone, you're conversing with a whole bunch of people, whether that's two, three, ten, a thousand. You're, you're conversing with others. You can't go back and edit it. You have to prep everything ahead of time. Does that mean you can't speak off the cuff if someone just asks, hey, Jimmy, can you get up and say a few words? Sure, but you use the same discipline. Who am I speaking to? What do they want and need to know? What's my point? Now go out there and try to be clear and concise. So they're two very different disciplines. Sometimes they overlap. Maybe the storytelling part is where it overlaps too, being a good storyteller. Yeah, storytelling, you can look at all different ways. You can say it verbally. You know, look at everybody who calls themselves a, a storyteller, and rightfully so. Speakers, movie uh, directors, uh, writers. It goes on and on and on. Storytellers. There are people who actually just, they are speaking, but they, they get up in storytelling competitions or storytelling uh, exhibits, and they just tell stories. So storytelling covers them all. And why? Because as human beings, we're fascinated with stories. And they're memorable. Should be, if they're done well. Yeah, definitely. Would you recommend someone that wants to learn more about public speaking and become a better public speaker to go to the Toastmasters meetings? Great organization. Yep. If, if you're looking to become a better speaker, there are so many different ways to do it. You can start out online. Problem with or books. Problem with two of those. <laughs> Shooting myself in the foot here with my book, but it gives you information, but it doesn't give you feedback. Toastmasters or a coach gives you feedback. So maybe start online. Maybe start with a book. Get a little more comfortable. Go to Toastmasters. That organization's been around around the world for over a hundred years for a reason. Very very helpful. Then you might step up to get a personal coach. Some people just jump right to the coach. Some people just stay with Toastmasters for years. All good. It's what suits you. It's what benefits you. And then, of course, Pocketbook comes into, uh, into play and everything else. Toastmasters, I don't know what they charge, $5, $10 a meeting. Coach is a little bit more expensive than that. So where, wherever you are, it's all good. So if someone hires you for coaching what what can they expect in a session in in my basic package here's what we do we have eight 90 minute sessions and during that eight 90 minute sessions we systematically and methodically cover uh, the fear of public speaking and how to manage your nerves then we go into the three-legged stool the actual three-legged stool of public speaking Creating a, re a presentation that resonates with your audience because it's based on your audience. Too many of us try to give presentations without thought to the audience. This is what I want to say. Nope, it's not about that. It's what about what they want to hear, what they need to hear to get them to that transformation. So you need that foundation. So we work on the message that resonates with the audience because it's based on them. Then we work on the voice, using your voice to communicate with people. So not only you're not monotone, but you can express things that are 
instantly recognizable. Like I'm really excited now and your voice goes up and you, it gets faster as, as opposed to the very dramatic voice. Things slow down, get a little more punctuated. We, how to use your voice. And then body language because the voice and the body language are the, uh, the nonverbal aspects of communication. We work on all three of those. And we have you do presentations. So it's kind of almost like classroom at the beginning while you're creating your presentation for the first few sessions, and then you're presenting. And we're working on making that uh, even more effective, working on your strengths, minimizing distractions if you have any. Uh, sometimes we don't even work on distractions because working on your strengths, the distractions either go away or don't even require uh, any work. So it's it's a at first people are nervous, rightfully so. At first people don't like looking at themselves on video, certainly understandable. But the second time they look at video, it's like, yeah, I want to look at this because I learned so much the last time. Video is awesome. Video is great. No different than if you went to a golf coach. He goes, Jimmy, you got a hitch in your swing. Nah, Peter, I don't. Yeah, Jimmy, you got a hitch in your swing. Nah, Peter, I, I really don't feel it. I feel nice and smooth. Jimmy, look at the video. Hey, look at that. I have a hitch in my swing. <laughs> so, you know, then you, then you work on it. But again, let's say you have a hitch in your swing and we work on your strengths and you don't get rid of the hitch, but your strengths are so strong. It's like, nope, don't even want to bother trying to get, I want to keep you where you are. This is awesome. So let's just ignore the, the hitch. Not everybody has a perfect swing, but some people have a great result even though. Same idea. Yeah, it reminds me of the quote that you had that started off your book. I forget who it was from or exactly what it was, but it was basically something along the lines of learn the rules perfectly so that you can break them. Picasso, maybe. Picasso. Is, there you go. Yeah. Picasso. Okay. Yep. Learn them like a pro so you can break them like an artist. So that's what you want to do. You want to learn them so well that you can make them different. You know, and who better than Picasso? Because if he drew a horse, to me, that wasn't a horse. But to him it was, and he did okay for himself. That, that's a great, great uh, thought, going back to that quote. Also, just add one more thing to all that. Through all of this, don't speak, don't look for perfection. You're not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. There's no one out there that's going to give a perfect presentation. It's just not going to happen. Don't look for perfection. Look for connection. Look to engage your audience. That's where it matters. That's where it makes a difference. I'm not an eloquent speaker. I don't use five-syllable words and words people have to go look up in a dictionary. Nor would I want them to work that hard. I'm very matter-of-fact, but I engage my audiences. I connect with them. And that's what makes me a decent speaker. Okay, so we're getting to the end of the time here. And I was just wanting to ask if there's anything that we didn't cover that you would like to mention. Yeah, have fun. Just go out and have fun with it. People instinctively know that if I'm not having fun with them, if you as a speaker, Jimmy, aren't having fun with the audience, then they're probably not going to have fun with you. They want you to want to be there with them. Now, fun is relative. If it's a eulogy, okay, maybe it is or isn't fun. 
I gave my mom's eulogy. It was a blast, actually. It was always, she didn't die suddenly. It wasn't a big surprise. So uh, I enjoyed my mom. She had a great life, and the eulogy was fun. It's stuff everybody who knew my mom would recognize. We had fun with it. Fifteen-year-old kid dies in an accident. It's not going to be the same situation, so the fun's different. But still, be in the moment. If you want to put it that way for that type of situation, they'll be in the moment with you. Got it. Do you want to tell everybody where they can find you online? Love to. Thanks so much. PeterGeorgePublicSpeaking.com. Nice and easy. PeterGeorgePublicSpeaking.com. Awesome. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll put your book in the show notes as well. And I just want to thank you again for having this conversation today. I really enjoyed it. I definitely am going to go back through and take some notes for myself. And um, yeah, tons of tons of great information in here. So thanks a lot, Peter. Thank you, Jimmy. It's been a pleasure. All right.